2024's Hall of Fame selections are final. We're going to break down who got in, who didn't make the cut, and our thoughts on if the writers made the right choices this year. We'll also dive into who we'd like to see enshrined in Cooperstown across baseball history. Today on Rounders, a history of baseball in America. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Rounders, a history of baseball in America. I'm your host, Jeff Lambert. On this episode, we are going to be talking about the most recent inductions into the Baseball Hall of Fame. To have that conversation, I've invited back old friend of the show, John Vampatella. John is the author of The Forgotten Game, a book that covers Game 5 of the 2004 ALCS between the Yankees and the Red Sox. So we had you back on in October 2021, John. It's been a bit. And then you've got a new book to discuss today, which I'm excited to go through. And you are also the assistant regional Northeast Regional Director for an organization called Athletes in Action, which I want to talk to you about a little bit more at the end of the show as well. But with all that said, thanks for coming back. It's great to have you. Yeah, Jeff, I'm, I'm excited to be back. Uh, last time we chatted, it was such a blast. And uh, I know we've been trying to make a connection to uh, to do this again. And I'm really excited to talk about the the uh, Hall of Fame uh, stuff. That's, uh, that's a fun topic. So uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. Really excited about it. Absolutely. It's been uh, big news. I've been interested reading all the reactions from different sports writers about the recent inductions. So this is going to be a great conversation. So I broke this into a couple different parts just to give the audience a little bit of a upfront expectation of what we're going to be doing. So we're going to start off by talking about the induction rules in case you're unfamiliar. How does somebody get into the Hall of Fame? We're going to cover that briefly. Then we're going to go over who was actually voted in this year and give our opinions on whether they should be there or not, according to you know our recommendations. And then we're going to look at those who are passed on the ballot and maybe give some insight into maybe if they should be getting on here in the next few years. And then to finish up, we're going to give our recommendations for who we think, whether they're eligible or not now our picks on who we think should be inducted into the Hall of Fame. So it should be a great conversation. So we're going to go ahead and jump right in. Let's do this. So the first section we're going to talk about is I want to just very quickly, if you're unfamiliar, there's a process that is very uh, extensive for being inducted into the Hall of Fame. And there's essentially two ways that you can get into the Hall. One of them is to be inducted into the hall by the Baseball Writers Association of America, the BBWAA. And how that works, there's 394 members in that association. You can get in there if you're a beat writer, journalist, columnist, sports editor, and you work for a major newspaper or wire service in the United States. So you can get in on that merit. Out of those 394 writers, they get a list and 75% have to vote for an individual in order for them to be inducted, right? So that's one way. The second way is you can get in by election from a special committee. So the the Baseball Hall of Fame has four different uh, era committees that meet, and they look at individuals that may have uh, passed on their eligibility. They didn't get voted in for the era, for the time that they were allowed to be on the ballot. They relook at the stats. They work with managers and umpires and executives to gather statistics, information. And those committees can vote someone in even if their eligibility has already passed. So there's two ways that you can get into the hall. 
Now, what does the Baseball Hall of Fame rules say about getting inducted? Is it just a statistical-based thing? Are there more uh, criteria that are considered? The answer is yes. So this is, I'm reading you exactly what the language is for being inducted into the Hall of Fame. So the official Hall of Fame requirements state that voting is based on, upon the player's record, playing ability, integrity, sportsmanship, character, and contributions to the teams or team on which the player played. So that is the, I think, interesting thing about the Baseball Hall of Fame because it's not just pure statistics, John. We have this, also you have to look right. at the, the personal side, the moral side of what the player brought to the game. And I think that's what makes it different than a lot of other sports. Right. And I so, think it's what makes it challenging, for sure. Uh, you might have player A, who is a great player, but uh, broke some rules. And now it makes you think, well, do they qualify? Uh, so this this will be a fascinating discussion for sure. I agree. And boy, we could do a whole nother episode on players that are not in the hall now who passed the first mark, you know, in terms of the stats, but maybe not in the second part about the integrity. So, so let's go yeah. ahead and jump right into it. So you've got an understanding of the rules. You understand who's voting these individuals in. There were several people that were on the ballot for this year, right? And four of them got in. So the four that were elected in for the 2024 ballot were Adrian Beltre, Todd Helton, Joe Maurer, and Jim Leland. We're going to go a little bit deeper into each individual, and we're going to talk about our thoughts on whether the writers made the right choice or not. So, John, you ready to do this? All set. Let's go. All right. So let's start off with our first uh, well, the writers first pick Adrian Beltre. So, John, give me your feedback here. Adrian Beltre got in by, uh, you know, over the 75% vote by a, a pretty good margin. What are your thoughts on this pick? Did the Writers Association get it right or no? Uh, when I looked at the ballot this year, one guy stood out as the obvious no-brainer, no-doubter, and it was Adrian Beltre. Just a spectacular career. I remember when he first came up, and you knew right away that he was a good player, came up with the Dodgers. He was good for the first few years, very young player when he came up. And so um, he had the pedigree. And then he had that monster breakout season in 2004 where he hit 48 homers, 128 RBI, finished second in the MVP voting. Mm -hmm. And you thought this guy could be a star. Took a little step back the next year when he uh, switched teams from the Dodgers to Seattle, but then just proceeded to crank out just a tremendous career the rest of the way. He was a he was a great power hitter. Uh, he was a great fielder. And everywhere he went, he was really, really good. And I thought this was the the one no doubt, no-brainer selection for the Hall of Fame. It was the easiest, when I looked at the ballot, it was the easiest yes on the whole ballot. So 100% they got this one right. Those are great points that you made, John. There are some arguments that are floating around out there about the uh, disagreements with this decision with Beltre, even though you and I think it's a, a clear decision. One of them is mm -hmm. based around the fact that he was never elected, excuse me, as an MVP in either league in which he played. Do you think that carries any weight that he didn't be able to stack up that hardware throughout his long career? Uh, some. Uh, for me, when I look at from the, just the pure player side of what makes a, a player a Hall of Fame player? There are two things. One is career marks, and you listed those. You know the sheer volume of of hits and homers, and and you know total production over the course of a long career. 
Yep. But then there's the how good was he at his peak? Okay, so he didn't win an MVP, but he was top 10 in MVP uh, six times. Finished second once, seven, three times, third once. I mean, he was he was routinely considered among the very best players in the game uh, when he was at his best. And it's like, okay, only one guy gets named an MVP in any given year. I mean, you know, you and I can appreciate this as Red Sox guys, but it's like the if you look at the MVP, Ted Williams uh, got hosed on several occasions uh, when it comes to MVP voting. I felt like Pedro Martinez got hosed uh, on MVP voting. So it's like, well, how much weight do you put on winning an MVP? I mean, it definitely is part of the equation, no doubt sure. about it. But if you are, <clears throat> if you don't win at all, and you are consistently in the top 10 or top 15, that's good enough for me. It's like if you don't win the Cy Young, but you're you're always in the mix. I mean, Chris Sale will not make the Hall of Fame. Uh, right. I don't believe too many injuries. But at his best, he was always a top five Cy Young guy. Never won mm-hmm. one that I recall, but but always considered one of the very best pitchers in the game. So to me, that's plenty. And he he met that mark. No problem. Great point. So both votes, yes, from us on this decision by the BBWAA. Excellent decision. Let's move on to the next individual that was inducted into the Hall of Fame. That's Todd Helton, the big H. Tell me about what you think about this pick. Did they get it right, John? This one's harder. This one's much <laughs> harder. Uh, just looking at the raw numbers, totals, 2,500 hits, well, 2519, 369 homers, 1406 in terms of RBI. Very good. A batting average, OPS, OPS plus, just, you know, a really good statistical profile. Terrific, terrific, terrific player. There's no way around it. <laughs> At his peak, he was outstanding. Uh, top 20 in MVP voting uh, six times. Never won it. Same issue. Uh, you know, good fielder too. Won several gold gloves. And he had he definitely had a few just spectacular, spectacular seasons. His five six year peak was was great. Yeah. <clears throat> but my hold up with him, I guess, and this is the one that's gonna uh, nag people with anybody who plays for the Rockies, is just yeah. the, the cores effect. Now he was very good on the road and mm-hmm. they did introduce the humidor to to affect the the baseballs. But I still can't deny that there's still something going on with playing at elevation and it, it impacts your statistical profile. So I have to take a little bit off of his stats. And to me, that puts him in the hall of really, really, really good. (laughs) You know what I mean? But not quite the hall of fame. I wouldn't, I'm not complaining that he's in, Right, you know, great player. <clears throat> so I, so I'm, I'm comfortable with him there. I wouldn't have voted for him, but I can totally see the argument for him being in, and it's definitely not one. Like I felt like Harold Baines. You know, I'm not the kind of person to stomp my feet over these decisions, but I thought he does not. He was not a Hall of Fame player. He just yep. wasn't, and right. he's not the only one. There's other guys too, but Todd Helton, I would not stomp my feet over. I, I just feel like he's pretty darn close. Uh, so while I wouldn't vote him in, I, I can understand why people would, and I don't have too much of a problem with it. I agree with your your borderline points there. You know, one of the, the well, two, I guess, stats that we look at a lot of times when it comes to putting people in the hall is did they get to 3,000 hits? 
Did they get to 5,000 home runs if you're an offensively minded player? He missed both. I mean, it wasn't by a lot, but he missed both, right? And he was a first baseman. Like, there's more first basemen in the Hall of Fame than I think any other position. So should the bar be higher for those kinds of players? Because there's so many other amazing first basemen that got in with better stats. So I'm on the fence here, too. The other thing, too, I think in his favor, and you mentioned it to an extent, he was the face of the Rockies during those early 2000s teams, you know, the 2007 miracle, you know, just the way that he carried that club. He was the face and, you know, he led them to a lot of their success. And that's something that's supposed to be considered by the writers when they're choosing, you know, a player and whether the contributions make it or not. So I'm going to go with the tentative. Yes, just like you, but I I agree. It sits right on the line. And I want to circle back real quick because you mentioned it in case people don't know. Can you talk a little bit about the humidor? And, and the offensive effects of Coors Field, from your understanding? So altitude, <clears throat> uh, so if you want to throw a curveball, uh, the, the, the action that gets put on a ball, the way you release it, the way you grip it, it creates spin. Yep. And the more air that flows over the ball and around the ball, the greater the spin. The greater the spin on a curveball, for example, the more it's going to move. Yep. But when you're a mile up in the air, there's less air to contact the ball. The, the ball can't get as much, quote unquote, like grip in, in the air. So curveballs don't curve quite as much. They're easier to hit. <clears throat> as a result, hitters um, have an easier time. I mean, anytime you have a curveball, it doesn't break quite as much. It's going to be easier to hit. Plus, with right. the thinner air, balls are just going to fly further. And so you combine those things, um, it's, it's going to have a greater impact for the offense. The humidor, my understanding, I don't really know technically how it works, but it's supposed to, it's supposed to affect the balls so that it kind of counteracts the, the altitude effects and the the atmospheric effects, of course. From my understanding, it's basically like a giant humidifier. So they installed it shortly after Coors Field was, uh, you know, built and they keep the balls in this giant humidifier until game time. So when they come out, they're not as, I guess, dried out. So like what you're saying, because of the atmospheric conditions. And there was a big drop in offensive production between those Rocky teams before and after the humidor. So right. there is something to be said about playing there on a regular basis. And would he have achieved those, achieved those same numbers if he was hitting in, you know, the Padre Stadium, you know, Petco yep. Field, where you've got those deep, deep outfield walls. So great points. So Todd Elton, you get a hesitant yes from both of us. Let's move on to Joe Maurer. Joe, the Minnesota kid. John, what do you think on this one? I thought he was a great player, um, and especially given his position, uh, I, I thought he was a yes. I, yeah. It wasn't as slam dunk for me as Beltre, but when I thought of Joe Maurer, I just thought, this guy is tremendous. Now, mm-hmm. not much power, only 143 homers in his entire career. That's definitely a strike against him. But he was such a good overall hitter. For a guy who didn't hit many homers, he hit a ton. And his career OPS and OPS pluses were great. Uh, for a guy who was a catcher to be top 20 MVP voting five times, and he won it once. So he had a, he had a really good peak. Um, his 2009 season was incredible, especially for a catcher. 28 homers, 96 RBI, OPS of 1.031, which is amazing. Yeah. Um, and when you think about the, the point you just brought up um, about Helton being like the face of a franchise, when I think of the twins, he's the mm-hmm. guy that I think of. And I think a lot of twins fans think of him that way too. So 
he he to me was a was a pretty solid yeah i think he deserves to be in the hall of fame despite some of his numbers not really stacking up certainly not against most of the great like first basemen you know that are in uh but Agreed. given that he was a catcher uh played a demanding position uh i thought he should have been in and i thought the vote was correct uh, there's a little bit of a disagreement that i saw at least on the reddit message boards with mauer just in the sense that he dealt with injuries midway through his career and actually had to make a position chain and go from catcher to first base. Now he's inducted as a catcher. Do you think that carries any weight in your mind? The fact that he had to switch positions, you know, and didn't have that longevity that other catchers in the hall of fame, like, well, we'll go over the names in a second, but what other catchers in the hall of fame achieved at that position? Well, definitely. If you want to call it a strike against him, I would say a strike against him. I think when he switched what about age 30 age 31 he he kind of made the switch permanently mm-hmm. uh his numbers definitely were not up to speed for for a first baseman hall of fame player but i thought his what he did as a catcher and then he played a very good first base and he was he still a very good baseball player um yep. kind of like <clears throat> kind of like with helton i can see the argument for him i can also see the argument against mauer yep and there's a there's there's some validity to it for sure you know yeah. was he one of those hall of very 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 good players or did he really deserve to be in the hall of fame and i just thought you know given what he did he was definitely one of the best catchers in baseball again sure. won the mvp as a catcher and which doesn't happen very often uh right. and then finishing out his career as a as just a solid first baseman mm-hmm. um I, I still think they got it right uh, but again, like I said, this was not a slam dunk like Beltre was. Right. I mean, there is a little bit of a drop off in terms of prominence when you think about the other catchers in the Hall of Fame. You've got Johnny Bench, you've got Pudge Rodriguez, Ivan Rodriguez, and then you got Joe Maurer. There might be a little bit of a drop off there in terms of excellence at the catcher position. But going back to your point, the guy didn't ask to get injured, and he still was able to turn it around, play two positions very successfully, and still put up solid numbers. And I think for me, the other thing too is. Mauer's like, again, going back to like the contribution to your team, he was a hometown kid. I think he went to Minnesota State, you know, played for the Twins, anchored some very good squads throughout his time there. Just an excellent player overall, elevated his city, his team. Like, you can't ask for more than that. A guy coming up like from the same place he grew up and making his team better. That's the stuff, you know, of movies that are made of. Yeah, I mean, he went to high school in St. Paul, Minnesota. So, like, how cool is that? To yeah, uh, it, it'd be like a kid uh, playing for the Red Sox who grew up in in uh, you know Cambridge, you know Massachusetts. Right. I mean, very very cool. That's like yep. Lou Maloney, I guess. You know, uh, from Framingham, yeah. Mass. But he wasn't quite as good a player <laughs> as <laughs> Joe Maurer was. That's true. Sweet Lou, he has a, a place in all Red Sox fans' hearts. Nevertheless, I think so. <laughs> yep. yep. All right. Sure. So. Two more borderline votes here from us for the Joe Maurer pick. Now we're going to wrap up with not a player, but a manager. We're going to talk about Jim Leland. He was the fourth guy that was inducted into the Hall of Fame. I mean, just a lot to talk about here in terms of contributions. When you look at the body of work, John, does this pass the the test for you? I think managers, I don't know how you feel, Jeff. I think managers are very hard, unless you unless you have just a ridiculously great record yeah. it's really hard to you know to pick a manager um I, I look at his i look at his i'm pausing because i'm really i'm really unsure of what to say about him he he won a world series and he guided 
some teams to some remarkable records. He managed a bunch of different teams, and he did a good job with uh, with Pittsburgh, Florida, and Detroit. Not so great with Colorado for one season, right? But but he won a lot. He won an awful lot, and uh, and w- I guess just longevity. He was a manager for a long time, twenty two years as a major league manager. I think we all have this picture in our mind of of Jim Leland in a dugout, and yeah. it it I don't know. I think of him as a really good manager. I just think, you know what? He obviously was good at what he did. He was successful basically everywhere he went. On the flip side, the guy didn't win as much as you think he would have won. Uh, And his record overall is barely above 500. Right. Now we can attribute that maybe to some of the losing to uh, the teardown effect. So like when they won the World Series with Florida in 1997, that that was a crazy great year for them. Yeah. But immediately they tore down the entire franchise mm-hmm. and he was stuck with a team after a massive fire sale and they went 54 and 108. Right. Well, okay. That goes on his record. But what manager, you know, Casey Stengel wouldn't have won with that team. So, yeah. you know, uh, in, in what sense, in what sense do we blame him and how does that impact uh, our view of his overall record? I would say, I this is going to be one of those gut things. I think just my gut response when I think of Jim Leland, I think, yeah, of course that guy's a Hall of Fame manager. He was really good for a really long time, and he won with a bunch of different teams. So probably should be in the Hall of Fame. Now, <clears throat> we pay attention to players way more than we do managers. So I don't really know what managers aren't in the Hall that maybe – should be or what managers are in the hall that probably shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. So I don't know where he stacks up compared to other managers. I think just when I think of him, I think this guy's been doing it really well for a really long time. Sure. Would I want him as the manager right now of the Red Sox? I wouldn't mind. You know, I think he'd probably do a really good job. And Steady so, uh, yeah. So, so I think it's probably a good pick. If nothing else, he just kind of stands for baseball. You know, and uh, he he he's what you think of when you think of baseball manager. So maybe on that alone, he deserved to be in. Well, you know, one of the interesting things that I found in in researching this, and you brought up a good point. You know, managers are not the popular guy on the ballot when it comes to being inducted. And if you look at all of the managers that were inducted into the Hall of Fame, they were all elected by committees, the Veterans Committee, or in this case with Jim Leland, the Contemporary Era Committee. So this is not a popularity contest. To your point, it's really hard to judge a manager's success they get in usually through like that deeper introspection into their careers like Leland was but I I can't I can't get behind this one personally 100% just because of the fact I mean he's 18th all-time in wins yes he won that that year with the Florida Marlins that Florida Marlins team had a good mix of we're gonna spend a lot of money at the trade deadline and then some good young players that we'll never see like on that team again. So how much of that was him? How much of that was just like the splash in the pan of talent? And then of course, you know, my wife is is from Florida. So I've adopted the Marlins as my second team and just like learning about the heartbreak of going through being a Marlins fan. Cause like you said, every year it's like we won. Now everyone's getting traded, you know, and seeing that, that cycle of fire sale. But I just don't think Leland has the chops when we look at other names. So if we're looking at guys, like you said, like Casey Stengel, Joe Torrey, uh, Connie Mack, like these other guys, Tommy Lasorda, Tommy Larusa, like this is is not there for me. Um, 
even though he I had. Res- I can respect that. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, you know, I don't know. He's right there. Your, your point of the Hall of Very Good or the Hall of Fame. I just don't think if you're going to elect a manager, he's got to be an iconic, like everyone knows his name 50 years after he's gone kind of a thing. Right. I don't know if Leland that makes, makes sense. that for me. Yep. Makes sense. We're going to pause there and just take a quick break for our seventh inning stretch to go over some facts, details, and to keep the lights on. We'll be right back, folks. We still have to talk about who we think deserves to be inducted into the Hall of Fame, even outside of this ballot. Stay tuned. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the seventh inning stretch. I've got a couple things to go through with you as we've been laying out here for the past couple of weeks. I always want to start off by going over our trivia question for the week. Last week for the St. Louis Browns episode, I asked you to weigh in on who was the player who appeared in the most games for the Browns from 1902 to 1953. I'm proud to say I stumped you because nobody got this right. The answer was George Sisler. Yes, George Sisler. So stay with it. You're going to get another chance here in a little bit to be able to take part in the trivia question for this week. Let's see how you do. Remember, the golden rule, no Googling. Let's hop over to sharing fan feedback for this week. I got a great email from one of our subscribers, Kevin R. Kevin left this message I think we can all benefit from. He said, for the month of February, the Kansas City Royals Foundation is paying the admission costs for everyone that wants to see the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City. Tickets for adults are $10, so this is a pretty good deal. Kevin, thank you so much for sharing this information. If you're listening to this in February of 2024 and you have the ability to get over to Kansas City and go to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, that is a great deal. I certainly hope this helps some people who are in the area take advantage of this deal. And Kevin, thank you again for sharing that. Let's finalize with our trivia question for this week and see how you do. We're putting it on the Baseball Hall of Fame. Who's the oldest living Hall of Famer? Whitey Herzog? Bud Selig, Willie Mays, or Sandy Koufax. Let's see how you do. Remember, all you have to do to be able to play is to sign up for the free newsletter at rounders.substack.com, and you'll be able to participate in the weekly poll as well as get a bunch of other perks. You'll get to see videos and images and see some of the reference links that I've used to put together these episodes so you get to go delve deeper into the the topic, the content that we're putting together, rounders.substack.com. Okay, folks, that's it. I'm going to play a couple ads from the sponsors, and we're going to get right back to the show. So that's our wrap-up of the four individuals that were inducted into the Fall of Fame. Now we're going to jump just really quickly over into there were other individuals that were on the ballot that did not get elected. They didn't get to the 75%. So some of those names are guys like Billy Wagner, Gary Sheffield, Carlos Beltran, Andrew Jones, Alex Rodriguez was eligible. Uh, Manny Ramirez was on there for the first time this year. So there were guys that were eligible that didn't get picked. Some of them got kind of close, you know, to the 75%. Some of them, it's not there. Is there anybody that got left off the ballot, John, that you think should have gotten to the 75%? We could spend hours talking about this because, <laughs> because I'm about to introduce to you a, <clears throat> what I, what I am going to, I'm, what I'm about to, about to say is, is opens me up to the criticism of 
rank hypocrisy. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I fully understand that. And, and here we go. Let me start with the easy one. Uh, Billy Wagner, I thought was deserving. If we're going to say relief pitchers should be in, I think you have to be an exceptional one. It's like sure. kickers in football. You have to be exceptional, yep. but he was, he was exceptional. Mm-hmm. And um, just his numbers just pop off the page. And he was just really, really good um, yeah. for a number of teams and uh, just dominant in so many ways. Even at the end of his career, even at age 38 for Atlanta um, in 2010, he makes the all-star team, puts up a one four three ERA, struck out 13 and a half Amazing. batters per nine innings. Just, you know, ridiculously great his whole career. And um, if you're going to have relievers in, he certainly he was no Mariano, no, but he deserved to be in if you're going to take them. <clears throat> so I think he should have been in. The other one I, I considered was Andrew Jones, mm-hmm. and I was fifty fifty on him. His his first half of his career was incredible, a great hitter, you know, one of the best fielders and center that you've ever seen. Yep. And then his career really tailed off, and his total numbers are still pretty darn good: four hundred thirty four homers. Uh, thousand two hundred eighty nine RBI. Still, even even with a drop off, um, with injuries and everything, you know, he still finished a career with a one eleven OPS plus. You know, made made a bunch of All Star teams. I thought he was pretty close, and I could see the argument for him. <clears throat> now, here's where I get into into trouble. I know we have the the character clause and all that stuff that we talked about, yep. and that's why for me, <clears throat> somebody like Gary Sheffield, um, or or even Andy Pettit who had a wonderful career yep. should not be in right? right. The steroid issue with those guys. Mm-hmm. That being said, I am willing to vote for a guy. Not that I have a vote. I don't, I don't actually have a, a baseball writers in America. You know, um, <laughs> I don't, I don't have a vote, but if I did, I could vote for somebody who, who did steroids if, and only if mm-hmm. their careers were so ridiculously great mm-hmm. that that you look at them and you're like, look, okay, steroid guy A put up terrific numbers. Steroid guy B was an otherworldly alien playing baseball with human beings. You know what I mean? Like, so like guys like Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens. I know right. they I know they weren't on the on the on the ballot. I don't have love for these guys as players, but they were so good. Mm-hmm. So that that even their pre if we if we if we agree with the understood, the commonly understood timeline for when those two guys got involved with steroids, mm-hmm. they put up full Hall of Fame careers long before they touched steroids, sure. as far as we know. And then when they did steroids, their numbers just exploded even more. Right. So Barry Bonds, those 40 years in the late 90s were you look at the numbers and you can't even believe that they're real. They, they're video game numbers, yeah. you know, being intentionally walked 230 something times in one season. Mm-hmm. You, you know, it's like, and every time they pitched to him, he hit a 500 foot Homer. And, and it was like, how do, how do humans do this? It's not even possible. And you could say certainly steroids clearly help, but something else was going on there too. He was locked in, in a way that humans just aren't supposed to be locked in. <clears throat> and so I look at those guys and I think they were so much better than everybody else. 
that even with steroids, I would say, put them in, make a note. They were doing steroids. That's part of their legacy, but they were so good. So now those two guys weren't on the, on the ballot. Right. But Alex Rodriguez was, and yeah. Manny Ramirez was. Yep. And in the same vein, both of those guys were beyond normal greatness on a baseball field. They, mm-hmm. they put up astronomical numbers, uh, you know, eye-popping in every way, two of the greatest players that have ever played the game. No question about it. Like, no argument about it. The only downside is, yep, they did steroids. It's like, okay, that's a big deal. And for a lot of people, total deal breaker, no matter what. Yep. I, I, I guess where I, this is where the hypocrisy comes in. And, and it's like, am I being hypocritical? And I think, well, probably. But the reason I think I might not be is because I, I put the bar, if you were involved in that, so high, mm-hmm. right? If you met that bar, well, then, goodness, sure. <laughs> like, you were so good. And yep. and that's what I think those guys were, you know, Clemens, Bonds, and in this case, A-Rod and Manny were just so, so good that that I would put them in even with that caveat. Now, so Gary what do you think Sheffield, about that? I like it, and I, I want to expand. We could do a whole other episode on this because I'm. that's where the, the distinction for me is, I agree with you, where guys that are just so astronomically better – then, you know, everybody else in the league, even with if you separate, you know, the steroid times out of their career, they're still there. I agree with you. The one guy that doesn't make that one for me is Pete Rose, just because there was that additional, yeah. you know, uh, insidiousness to what he was doing as opposed yeah, to the I'm, performance enhancing. I'm with you on that. To me, gambling is different. And people might say, well, you, he gambled on his own team, but it, it matters. It totally yeah. matters. And, uh, and so, and that was the one rule. That was the one rule that Major League Baseball said, thou shalt not do this ever because it right. affects, totally affects the integrity of the game and everything. And, and it's really hard for me to swallow it now when I see gambling ads every minute of every day uh, for yeah. every sport. It's like, oh, all these sports are totally in bed now with Vegas, whatever. That's another conversation. 100%. But, but that, that is different to me. Again, someone might say, John, you're being ridiculous. There's, there's, there's no difference at the end of the day. And I'm like, well, to me, there is. And if I have a vote, sorry, Pete Rose. And for Sheffield, his numbers to me don't quite stack up. He doesn't, he's very good. No question about yes. it. And he was the guy as a Red Sox fan, I did not want to see come up to the plate in the right. 2004 ALCS. It's like not Sheffield. Cause I just felt like he was going to hit one a thousand miles every time he came up. But yep. by the way, his son is crushing it and he's got the same exact swing. It's crazy to watch. It's like he's the same player. Um, but but uh, I just thought he didn't quite make it. And Pete Rose, I'm right. with you 100%. It's too bad because the all-time hits leader, you know, should be in the Hall of Fame. But Yeah, nope. you talk about aliens amongst us. Pete Rose, meets, he meets that criteria, especially the amount of time that he played. The guy was a player manager while he was hitting, you know, 30-plus home yep. runs a year. Like, it's just yep. different breed. Um, yep. And on a note on Sheffield, I agree with you there, too, just because of his connection to steroids. but. He wasn't the alien level, I think, that some of the other ones we talked about. And unfortunately for Gary, he's off the ballot. That's it. This was his 10th year. He's not going to get another shot. So it it continues to follow players, this steroid era. There's going to have to be, I think, like a a real consensus around what we do about these players because Mm -hmm. it's been kind of ignored. You know, do we do the asterisks? Oh, you know, the Hall of Fame hasn't really put their foot down on how we treat these players. The other one for me, too, not to go off too much on a tangent you got to look at shoeless joe 
too, you know, Shoeless Joe Jackson. And again, yeah. Uh, yep. a guy who is just otherworldly with his ability to hit the ball, but he's like, he falls into that Pete Rose camp of he bet against his own team. I mean, I know you can make an argument about the evidence. Was he just there as a spectator? You know, did he not report? Was he actively involved? But he's another one just. Well, wasn't even so much that he bet against. He he actively, well, if the story is 100% accurate, like he literally helped throw games, right? I mean, that's the accusation. That's, yeah. Yeah, it's like you can't you can't do that or like whatever right. whatever else you do you can't do that you know yeah that's a, like with gambling already so prevalent in sports once you cross that bridge of being like okay we're gonna allow this level of of uh, recognition for someone that did that I don't know if that's a bridge that you can walk back across so right right that's another sure. episode we got to do sometime John those, oh, those yeah. big names oh man yep, it's, yep. It's, there's one other guy that kind of have always have I've always thought should get more consideration and he he's long long off the ballot so this is not a yep. this is not a, a a topic really for today but dale murphy i've always been surprised that he was not in the hall of fame he was a tremendous player won back-to-back mvps top 20 in mvp voting a uh, top 21 anyway in mvp voting seven times yep. gold glover five times silver slugger multiple times home run champ um great career stats uh, fell two homers short of of uh, 400 and didn't rack up the 3,000 hits, but for a long time was clearly the best player in certainly his league, if not all of baseball. And yeah. um, he did it for quite a while. He was good for a, for a long time. And so I, I I guess I never understood why he didn't get more of a more recognition because he was a terrific player and with no you know, no stains on his record whatsoever was, you know, considered, yep. a, you know, a great guy. Um, and, you know, he, he was the face of the Braves for a very long time. And uh, I guess I would have liked to have seen him in there, given some of the people that are in. I think he's better than some of the folks in there. But, um, you know, that would be, have to be something that one of these committees picks up, picks up later on and, and decides to vote 100%. him in. He's one of those guys I hope the Eras Committee looks at, you know, with a hard look and goes through and sees not only the stats, but just the in that time that he played, the overall impact that he had on the game. I know for me, if I had the power to pick any individual to have the Hall of Fame induction bestowed upon, for me, it's more of a recent guy. Johan Santana. Do you remember him? Pitcher on the Mets and the Twins? Yeah, he was tremendous. Oh, man, he was just, you know, that was the time in my life where I was really watching baseball more than anything else in my life and just he was always the guy you knew if he was starting against your team it's going to be a loss he was absolutely dominant so just really quickly i want to like make the case for him he yeah the knock against him is that his stats weren't as uh fully played out as other starting pitchers so he didn't meet certain statistical numbers that other pitchers in the hall of fame did but part of the reason for that is he started pretty late he didn't become a full-time pitcher until he was 25 years old so and, and on top of that, after he turned 32 because of some injury issues, I don't think he ever pitched more than 130 innings. So the numbers weren't as high with the strikeouts, the inning pitches, the, the innings pitched to wins. But for like an eight year stretch, he led the American League and the National League in strikeouts. He led them in war. He had two Cy Young awards and he should have won a third. And he he led in every statistical category in 2005. But he didn't have as many wins as Bartolo Colon, and he lost to Cy Young to him. So it's one of those, like, he should have gotten it. And every pitcher that's won three Cy Young awards 
has been inducted into the Hall of Fame or will be, you know, once they get on the ballot. So I look at him and I see just overall dominance, what he did for the Twins in making them solid playoff teams, the stretch that he had, and then just trying to factor in, you know, okay, he didn't meet the amount of innings pitched as other players. You know, he didn't have the longevity. I can excuse that based on the dominance and the numbers that you put up during the time that he did. So he's my pick for if I had to pick yeah. someone to go into the Hall of Fame. That, that's, a, that's a great call. Well, remember at the beginning we talked about uh, longevity versus like dominance, you know, peak years. Uh, definitely didn't have the, the longevity, as you pointed out, but his peak was incredible. Uh, and and uh, he was definitely a guy I always thought was going to go out and, and dominate a game, and he usually did. He had great control, struck out a ton of guys, um, he won a ton of games, pitched a lot of innings, um, you know, five straight years of, of almost 220 innings, uh, a season and a yeah. little more than that, always among the leaders in ERA. Uh, mm-hmm. he was, he was, and ERA plus, like just like OPS plus ERA plus is a stat that I really look a lot at, yep. uh, in my book, the forgotten game, as you know, I made the case that Pedro Martinez at his best was the best pitcher that's ever, that's ever been on the planet. And some people say, Oh, like, Bob Gibson pitched to a 1.12 ERA in 1968. And it's like, yep, that's true. But back then, the American League batting champ was Carl Yastrzemski at 301 because hmm. pitching that era was, it was so dominant that yep. you can't, I mean, there's no way around 1.12 ERA is ridiculous, right? It's, it's ridiculous. But amazingly, it wasn't as good compared to that era as Pedro Martinez's. 1.74 in I think it was 1999 or 19, or 2000. He had two back to back years where he was crazy and and like those that was the height of the steroid era and Pedro right. was pitching those numbers and so when you make the comparisons to the era in which they played, yeah, Pedro was so much better than everybody else, so much better. And people yep. don't like to hear that, but it's totally true. Santana was kind of similar, like yes. in in 2004 when he won his first Cy Young. Yeah, I'm making your case for you. You got me on a soapbox. Um, you know, 265 strikeouts, and his ERA plus was was 182, which is crazy, crazy great. It, it wasn't just that he was great; he was so much better than everybody else uh, yeah. at the same time. Um, so yeah, that's a great call. He was he, he from a pure was this guy a great baseball player perspective? He he would he should be in. Yes, and that's where you know I hope. We we have this now, I think, which is good. We have the ability to say with petitions, with trying to lobby for certain players who may not be eligible anymore, take a second look at these individuals and really like put in perspective what they did in their era. I just did an episode on Herman Munson uh, a couple weeks ago, you know, and how he died tragically, you know, before finishing out his career. And there there is a push to get the errors committee to look at him and and really assess whether he should be in the Hall of Fame or not. And I think there's a a strong case for him too. So yeah, he was he was a great he was a great player. One of my first and most treasured baseball cards, even as a Red Sox fan, I have a Thurman Munson card that I've kept since I was a kid, and I don't, I don't know why I kept it when I was a kid. Uh, I knew he was a great player, and then right. I think when he died, I, I was like, I gotta hang on to this one, you know. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's kind of interesting. That was the days when like Red Sox fans hated Thurman Munson, <laughs> but, right. but you know, I kept his card. Yeah, you got to respect greatness where it is, right? Well, folks, Absolutely. hey, 
we've we've gone through, we've ranked what we think how the uh, writers did on their selections this year, talked about some of our picks for who we think should get consideration for the hall. We'll see what happens next year, John. Maybe we can do this again and, and rank and see if some of the people we talked about end up getting up higher on the ballot. But before we finish, really quickly, I want to talk to you about what's going on with you. You know, we had you on the talk about your book, which I've got right here in the background in case anybody needs to see the cover. Uh, excellent read. Great talking to you about that. You have a, re- a relatively recently new book out. I would love for you to talk a little bit about some of the research that you've done since we talked and what you came up with. I would I would love to. So the book that I've uh, recently released um, through my publisher, Roman and Littlefield, is called 53rd Man, Fighting to Make It in the NFL. So it's a football book, not a baseball book. And, and I don't know how many of your listeners and viewers are, uh, are, are football folks, but I like I like all kinds of sports. And um, the genesis of this book was there was a student this touches on a topic we're going to get to in a minute here, but uh, touches on my my real work which is working with this organization called Athletes in Action. It's a, it's a sports ministry. Uh, and locally, I work at the University of Connecticut. I'm wearing UConn gear right now. Uh, we, we just got back from a, from a little retreat uh, with student athletes from all over uh, New York and New England. We're up in New Hampshire for a, for a getaway. And, and uh, the whole idea is we want to help students connect their faith with their sport. I'll, I'll talk more about that in a minute. Anyway, one of our, one of our, my former students, a, a student I mentored was named Jeremy Davis, and he was a, a great receiver for the university of Connecticut. <clears throat> now UConn's not like Alabama or Georgia, but you know, it's still D one football program. And he yeah. got drafted in the NFL. Super fun for me uh, to see him. This is a guy I just loved to death and, and uh, spent a lot of time with and to, to see him in the NFL was really a blast. Well, he ended up not really making it as a receiver. He, he, I would say, struggled in a six-year NFL career. He ended up being a special teams-only guy, and every year it was a fight to make the team. And I thought to my – over the years, we were, we were talking about this and how, how's he doing, how's he handling it, what's, what's the latest issue, you know, like how's, how's it look this year, making the team, whatever. And I just realized this guy put in a crazy amount of work to fulfill a lifelong dream to play in the NFL. But nobody's ever heard of this guy. Nobody would pick him up on a fantasy team. He doesn't really show up on rosters. I mean, he's technically on the roster, but because he only really plays special teams, he's only generating a couple of tackles, you know, a handful of tackles a year. Um, To the the Giants and later to the Chargers, he was a valuable member of the team, but, but he was not a guy that fans knew of. Tom Brady, everybody knows. Today, Patrick Mahomes, everybody knows. Right. And, and you you know, their stories, you know, Travis Kelsey's dating Taylor Swift. Right. So you everybody knows this. But does anyone know who the 53rd man and I 53rd man refers to the size of an NFL roster? 53 guys. Does anyone know who the last guy on the chart on the uh, Chiefs roster is? No, I don't either. Right. Nobody knows who that is. The Chiefs do, but I don't know who that is. But you know what? That guy's got a compelling story. That guy has worked his tail off and has overcome an unbelievable amount of hurdles to get to where he is and for that guy he's gonna he's gonna his team's in the super bowl how cool is that anyway i thought there are some stories here that are worth telling mainly because these guys deserve to have their stories told and i think fans of football would really enjoy reading about some of these people who they never ever read about in the paper uh never see on tv really 
And so I started, I started chronicling Jeremy's story and then I got connected to a few other athletes. And so it's really, I highlight three athletes in particular, Jeremy Davis, a guy named Austin Carr, who played for four years for the, he got cut by the Patriots, played for four years, um, with, um, the saints. And then Matthew Slater, who ended up, um, going from a 53rd man to a, an all pro. So that's one right. of those like radical success stories. You know, a guy who, who becomes much more than a 53rd man. Tom Brady is the ultimate example of that. Um, yeah. of course being drafted number 199 out of, out of, uh, college, but, but it was a really fun book to write. And I think that people will connect with these guys and, and just have a newfound respect for the guy who normally we would, we wouldn't give a second thought to, or we'd say, oh, that guy isn't very good. Not very good. He's in the NFL. Like he's yeah. an incredible football player. And uh, and just gain a greater appreciation for these guys and and maybe even gain some inspiration. You know, in every company, at our local grammar school, that's five minutes from our house, mm-hmm. there's a 53rd man there. There's a guy who's the 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 least paid, uh, least known, probably least respected guy in the building. But he brings value to the school yeah. and he brings contribution. And you know what? Um, he deserves to to be recognized. And I want to I, I kind of view this as a way to recognize people who are in that position, certainly in the NFL, but in every other walk of life, because there's 53rd men and women everywhere. In fact, one of the neat stories is when when this was pitched to Roman and Littlefield, the publisher, the woman who was the acquisitions editor jumped all over the book. And when she was telling me why. She said, I saw this and I said, I, I was a 53rd man. And I was like, what do you mean? Well, she was a great college soccer player and got drafted in the National Women's Soccer League by Seattle. Mm-hmm. And she said, but I never played. I just was always on the bench. You know, I had to go to every practice. I had to work as hard as everybody else, but I never played. So when I saw this, I was like, that's my story. And there's so many people, right? Whether at every level, whether you're, you know, the last kid on the bench on a, on the JV team in high school or whatever, right? You can relate to being kind of a bench athlete and, um, and what that's like. So anyway, super fun book to write. Um, and I think sports fans, football fans will find it. Even baseball fans will find it um, pretty entertaining. So thanks for giving me a chance to talk about that. Yeah. I love the underlying message, John. You just gave me a flashback to someone I haven't thought of in 15 years. My, the athletic director at my small little college, uh, Atlantic union college in Lancaster, Massachusetts, guy named Sandy Smith. He was a draft pick for the Phoenix Suns, played a couple of years in the NBA, uh, you oh, know, nice. didn't pan out in terms of having a long career, but he was the glue that really held that campus together. You know, the guy that yeah. people would come talk to when even they just needed someone to to be able to vent to and ran, right. you know, his little part of the the world, you know, of, of that college successfully and really gave life to the school. And, you know, he was the 53rd man, you could say, of that institution. So, yeah, uh, that's cool. Coach Smith. Yeah. So it, it's yeah, a good fun. message. Good. We all have to recognize who that individual is in our life in different capacities. Where can people yep. pick up the book, John? Where, where is it available? Uh, Amazon is the most popular place. You can certainly pick that up. Um, you can go to my website, which is johnvampatella.com. And mm-hmm. uh, then there's a button on the upper right called shop. And, um, and you can buy this or you can buy uh, the forgotten game there. Uh, if you, <laughs> this is still so weird to me, but people like a signed copy. Well, if you buy it from Amazon, I can't sign it, but if you buy it from me directly, I'll be able to sign it. Um, it still okay. feels weird. Oh, can you sign it? I'm like, I don't, I guess. Yeah, sure. No problem. <laughs> Happy to. Um, I just, I'm not really used to yet. Um, uh, people wanting my autograph, I suppose, but, um, I guess it, 
little personal note in the book, you know, um, people enjoy. Uh, so, yep, johnvampatella.com or certainly Amazon um, is a good place to get it. And in closing, too, you mentioned it at the beginning, talking about the book. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your work with Athletes in Action. Can you tell us about the organization and what you do there? Yeah, um, it's been something I've been a part of ever since I graduated from college. I was a college uh, club college athlete at Syracuse University, and uh, my life was changed um, forever. Um, when I was a student, um, it's where um, I would say that uh, my Christian faith became real. I grew up in a, in a nominally Christian home and, and, um, and really decided as a sophomore in college that this was real and it mattered. Anyway, that led me into this ministry. And Athletes in Action exists to help connect student athletes' faith with their sport and help them answer the question of what does God have to say to me or what does God have to do with me in my life as a student athlete? And I'll tell you, it is, it is amazing how many student athletes are looking to pursue this area of life. And what's crazy, Jeff, is the number of students that have gotten involved even locally at UConn mm-hmm. has gone through the roof following COVID. And you might ask, why is, what has happened with COVID? And I'm like, I'm not really sure, but I think COVID really exposed people's internal need for significance, for community, for a connection to God. You know, everybody felt totally out of control in their lives during COVID. Can you believe that was like four years ago? that has started. That's, that's, doesn't feel that, like it. I know that's crazy. But, um, but we've just seen uh, an increase in, in students struggling with mental health issues. And while we are not mental health providers and we would never claim to be, um, we are like a, we do triage, right? And it's like, we're the first stop that a lot of people go to. They say, Hey, I'm really struggling with this area of life. Might God have something, some way of, can God help me? And, and so we'll direct people. Um, sometimes people will certainly need uh, professional. Um, you know, uh, psychological help and that sort of stuff. And we certainly get them the help they need. But the, the ministry really is all about helping to connect people's faith with their sport and and to mm-hmm. connect them to to God. And what I what I say to student athletes at UConn is, I think you will be the best student athlete you can be when you are the best you that you can be. And the best you that you can be is one who's connected to your creator. Um, and so we want to help, we want to help them get connected to God. And, and we find, um, that people's, we don't do this so that they get better at sports. And I don't want to paint the wrong message here, but, um, but we find that people are able to perform better on the field, on the court. And it's not because they can suddenly throw a ball harder or dribble better or anything like that. It's because internally they're more at peace. They feel more whole as people. They can better handle challenges and disappointment, dealing with injuries. They feel like, okay, there's purpose in this as opposed to the why me, my life's terrible. Like they're just able to navigate so many more things. And that shows up in other areas of life, including their athletics. So we think we bring positive value to the athletic department, certainly at the University of Connecticut, but but elsewhere. And um, we've got a ton of coaches who love what we do. Um, and uh, want us to be part of their program. So it's been something I've been doing ever since college, 30, gosh, 30, well, I graduated in 91, so 34 years ago, 33 years ago, and and uh, I don't plan on stopping anytime soon. So thanks for giving me a chance to talk about that. It's Absolutely. certainly, certainly um, 
serious business for me and something that I'm pretty passionate about. If people want to get involved or support the organization, how could they go about doing that? Uh, well, this is not part of my work as an author, but if you go to my author page and you want to learn more, there's a, there's a mm-hmm. form, there's a place there where you can contact me. And if your question is about athletes in action, by all means do that. I'm happy to talk right. about that. And one of the books that I, that I wrote is actually more of a professional book related to my work with, with students, um, and professors. And it's, it's called for good reason. And it really helps present a positive case for why faith in God is reasonable and, and, uh, and wise. Um, but aside from that, you can go to athletesinaction.org and, uh, there's all kinds of links there that you can, you can learn more information. You can, uh, connect with people who work with AIA. That's a great resource as well. Great. Excellent. I'll make sure to include links in the show notes in the description for people. If they want to check out the website, the book athletes in action, that way they can easily do so. So John, overall, thanks for taking the time to come on the show. This is a great conversation. Love talking baseball with you. Yeah, same here, my friend. And let's do it again soon. Absolutely. To our listeners and watchers, thanks for tuning in for another episode. And remember, as we always end the show with, there are only two seasons, winter and baseball. See you next week. Rounders, A History of Baseball in America is produced by Jeffrey Lambert. Our research assistant is Cass Silver. A special thanks to our starting nine supporters, Nathan Halverson and Jack Wilson.